Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're nestled in your homes and are sitting in comfy chairs as you hear the Word of God preached this morning. Uh, I also hope, as I prayed a few minutes ago, that you will be wide awake and on the edge of your seat, as it were, not to hear what I have to say, but to hear what the, what the Scriptures have to say, what the Spirit has to say to His church. Why don't we begin, as always, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this hour. We thank you for the songs that we have been able to sing together, though this church body is dispersed all over the city. And yet, Father, together we are singing your praises as if to pray these things, these truths, back to you, giving you glory and honor because you are worthy. And we believe that. We believe that because it's true, and we believe it together this morning, even though we are apart. So we pray, Father, that you would now take your word and feed us, nourish us, satisfy us this morning with your unending love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We give you praise and thanksgiving for the wonderful truths that we are about to look at afresh this morning. So be glorified in it, Father, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen and amen. If you're standing, you can be seated. Well, as the coronavirus pandemic continues to wreak havoc around the world, the church wrestles with how to respond. And throughout the centuries, whenever plague or pestilence emerged, threatening the very existence of certain civilizations, Christian people have often played key roles in offering help and hope. We read stories of ancient Christians who courageously were running into plague-ravaged towns to render aid to the sick when everyone else was running in the opposite direction to save themselves. In times of war and pandemic, Christian women were often the first to volunteer as nurses, and, and so many men, out of love for Christ and for suffering people, entered school to study medicine so they too could render aid when it was time to do so. Others focused on disciplines such as chemistry and anatomy in an effort to understand diseases, their causes, and their cures. And today, Christian people are going out of their way to make sure that their neighbors are cared for and that their needs are met in practical and specific ways. And all of these are wonderful examples of what it means to love our neighbors, to engage in good works, because of the manifold mercies of Christ. And I suspect that all of that work and all of that labor on the part of believers from Calvary Bible Church are pleasing to the Lord. And so we, we say praise God for that and keep it up. But all that being said, however, it should be noted that the highest and mo most necessary kind of ministry that believers should render to the fearful, the sick, the discouraged, and the hopeless, and the lost, is the ministry of the Word of God. I think so often we are mostly concerned about making sure people have food and toilet paper, that their, their lawns are mowed, and that their houses are taken care of, and that they have food in the refrigerator. But we forget that our primary ministry is the ministry of the Word, 
We don't neglect the one to do the other. We do them both. And so we minister. We minister the word of God. Yes, believers are to minister to people in all the practical ways that we can devise. But the greatest need in times of suffering has always been to receive the ministry of the word of the Lord and to be the ones who are delivering the ministry of the word of the Lord. This was always Paul's priority in ministry. To be sure, there were times when he healed the sick, but there were also times when he either didn't or couldn't do anything for someone's personal well-being. He, he couldn't make them well, apparently. Witness the occasion of his writing to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, when he writes, Trophimus, I left sick in Miletus. Now, why did he leave him sick? I don't know. Either he wouldn't or he couldn't heal him. His primary, his primary ministry was the ministry of the word. It's not always possible to relieve people's physical pain and suffering, nor is it always God's will. Witness Job, who never did have his pain taken away. We assume the Lord did that in the end. But the whole book of Job is about his suffering and, and how God used it for his glory. But through the ministry of the word of God, we can give people the greatest, most necessary gift and provision of all. This will be the third time that we've looked at Colossians 1, 24 through 29, and along the way we've been learning what a faithful pastor is and what a faithful pastor does. And as we have considered the example of Paul, we've discovered specific applications for all Christians, no matter your gifting, no matter your calling into ministry. Last week we began to consider the second part of our of our outline, namely, what a faithful pastor does. And, and Paul is very clear on this point. And so let's begin, as always, by standing together and reading this text from the Word of God, Colossians 1, 24 through 29. We've read this at least three times in a row now, and uh, this will be the last week that we do it at least for a full sermon. So let's begin with verse 24. You're familiar with it by now, but it's good to read it again. And here we go. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this purpose I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Now, as we consider what Paul is saying to the church of Colossae, let's be careful 
to ask ourselves how God wants us to apply these truths to our own lives, especially now in this difficult time for our world. The timeless truth of the passage that we're looking at this morning is this, that faithful pastors proclaim the word of God by warning and teaching in order to present everyone complete in Christ. And for everyday Christians, like you and me, the application might sound like this. Like faithful pastors, faithful Christians proclaim Christ, they minister the word, and they help one another grow. They help one another grow. Now let's establish some hooks here to hang our thoughts on for the rest of this message. What does a faithful pastor do? Well, number one, he proclaims Christ. Number two, he shepherds the flock. And number three, he labors for their maturity. Well, let's consider the first one. What does a faithful pastor do? Well, he proclaims Christ. Now you recall here that Paul's primary goal is to exalt Christ in our hearts. He wants us to see that Christ is preeminent over all. I would suggest to you he wants us not only to see it, but to feel it in the heart. That Christ is preeminent over all things, nothing, and no one is greater in power, higher in authority, or deeper in wisdom and in love than Jesus Christ. He is the almighty creator God. And he is reconciling sinners to himself through the blood of his Christ, uh, the blood of his cross. And one day he will reconcile everything in the cosmos, making peace through the blood of his cross. Now that wasn't a mistake to repeat that phrase twice. Paul repeats it twice in both of those contexts. Now, not only that. But Christ is building something on earth the likes of which the world has never seen. Namely, a community of people who existed for generations and ages as mortal enemies of one another. But now, they love one another as no human community has ever loved. It's a community of Jews and Gentiles. A community of men and women. It's a community of slaves and freemen. It is a community made up of educated and uneducated, the rich and the poor alike, all gathering together week after week, day after day, because of their love for Christ. Their love for Christ. Listen to how Paul says it in verse 21. Uh, sorry, 27. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Christ in you. Behold, beloved, the awesome doctrine of union with Christ. The awesome doctrine of union with Christ. He in us. Us in him. Not just with him. 
He is not just visiting us. He's not just among us. He is in us and we in him. Wish we had time to look at John chapter 17 where the father, the son is talking to the father about his relationship, Christ's relationship with us and our relationship with him and his relationship with the father that we are united. We enjoy a union with Christ that no one else in the world can possibly enjoy. Listen, here's Paul's big mystery. The most privileged relationship that humans can have with God is no longer only for Israel. It is now for everyone. Everyone can be reconciled to God through the blood of his cross. The thought that Messiah would take up residence in an uncircumcised pagan man was absolutely unthinkable. But now, this happened. And it was scandalous and wonderful. Beloved, our church is primarily Gentile people. This book, this message, is for us. It's for us. Now, all of us become the joyful recipients of the greatest treasures mortals can receive from God. And if you're a thinking person this morning and you haven't fallen asleep on the couch yet, you might be thinking to yourself, what are those riches? What are those riches? Well, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked it. And turn to the left a little bit. You're going to pass here. We're in Colossians. We're going to go past Philippians. We're going to go back to Ephesians. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1. This is, um, this is what Spurgeon calls God's checkbook, the, the believer's checkbook. What we have available to us, these are the treasures of God. Not all of them, but this is uh, truly amazing. If, if you see this in the Greek, it's the longest sentence in the Bible. Paul just can't take a breath when he's talking about the glorious riches that we have in Christ. And, and, and let me just read this to you. This is Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. You're familiar with this. Now, I've already talked to you about being united with Christ. Paul's favorite phrase for that is in Christ. And so be alert to that as we read. I hope you got your Bible open and you're looking at Ephesians chapter 1 right now. What I've done in my Bible is I've highlighted every time he says in Christ or in the beloved or something like that. So pay attention to that. But here's the riches that we have, and all of them come to us from God in Christ. And this is what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, here we go, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us as adoption, uh, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, his grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose for which he set forth in Christ 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I know that was a virtual avalanche of words. So let's go back to the beginning and ask, tell me again, what, what are the riches? What are the riches that you just ran through and we didn't have time to stop and talk about? So let me name them. We are recipients of God's sovereign choice, verse 4. In verse 5, he predestined and adopted us. In verse 7, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Don't you love that one? Aren't you forgiven? We, we only have that in Christ. Verse 9 and 10, we know the mystery of God's ultimate goal and plan for the world. In verse 11, we have an inheritance in heaven. The, the author of Hebrews says it's kept in heaven for you. In verse 13, we are sealed by his Holy Spirit. And we are marked, that's what it means, we are marked by God with an indelible imprint, identifying us as belonging to him. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And all of this comes to us, beloved, in Christ, in our union with him. Because we are branches and he is the vine, we receive all life, all the life that we get from God comes to us through Jesus Christ so that now we are alive in him. And being alive in him, we receive everything that he has for us, everything that God can and will give to human beings, he gives to them in Christ. And you have to be in Christ to receive it. And I hope, even as you're listening to this today, that you will consider whether or not you are in Christ, whether you know him, whether he knows you, whether you have been reconciled to him, whether you have received the forgiveness of sins, whether his spirit indwells you, fills you with the love of Christ and the love of your neighbors and the love of people who need you. Paul's trying to move the Colossians and us into grateful adoration of Christ for what he did for us on the cross. And that with good reason, this is for good reason that he's trying to move us to grateful adoration for not only are Jews and Gentiles united with Christ theologically, we are now united with one another practically in the church. How did God make Jews and Gentiles into one? The only possible explanation 
the only theological explanation, the only divine explanation, the only biblical explanation is that all of us, both Jew and Gentile, are now in Christ. Christ in us. We in Christ. Christ in you. You in Christ. This, beloved, is our hope. It is our hope. It is the guarantee of glory. Christ in us is the guarantee of glory. When you realize that God has put in your heart a love for the Savior and a love for his word. You know, those are two things that happen. When you you come to know Jesus Christ, initially, so often when when I have known people here in in our church body who've come to Christ, um, and my parents when they came to Christ, and some of my kids when they came to Christ, this is what happened. Something changed in their heart. That universally is the experience of everyone. Something changes in your heart. The manifestation of, of that is suddenly you love Christ. And suddenly you love God's word. And suddenly you look over at the person that you didn't like before and you have compassion and love for them and you want to help them, you want to serve them, you want to bless them in some way. And you don't know where that's coming from. I'll tell you where it's coming from. It's coming from Christ It's coming from his spirit in you. And beloved, that is the guarantee of glory. It is the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. With all of that in mind, what does a faithful pastor do? Look at verse 28. We proclaim him. Or if you have the ESV, which I do, I just like saying it the other way. The ESV, it says, Him we proclaim. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim Him. We don't proclaim that God wants us to be healthy all the time. We don't proclaim that God wants us to be rich. We don't proclaim tips for a better business. We don't proclaim demon exorcism. We don't proclaim political agendas. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ. Oh, beloved, how far the Church of America has drifted away from this single ultimate mandate. We have have turned the word of God into into some kind of a source book for life coaching. It was never intended for that. It was intended primarily to exalt Christ, even in the wisdom of the Old Testament that will affect every area of your life for God's glory and your good. Even that is for the glory of Christ. Oh, beloved, we need to be so careful. God's purpose in this world has not moved one centimeter in 2,000 years. From first to last, he is building his church through the proclamation of Christ, a crucified Christ. To the Jews, it's foolishness. To the Gentiles, it's rubbish. But to those of us who believe, it is the power of God. 
So we preach Christ crucified, risen, coming again. It might be helpful here, however, to point out that the word proclaimed here is not the usual word that we would expect if Paul were speaking about preaching. Although, this word is used sometimes about preaching. But not always. It's a more general term. It can mean other things. The word used here means to simply to declare or to announce or to tell. I mean, this is, you're, you're the mailman, you're, you're the messenger, you're delivering a message, you're telling it to people. We proclaim him indicates simply that this is the message that Paul delivered regarding, regardless of how he delivered it. We proclaim him. And, and perhaps that's why uh, the ESV puts him at the beginning of the verse. It's emphatic. Him we proclaim. And so, Paul might preach it in the marketplace. He might explain it in Herod's palace when he was in jail in Caesarea or talk about it in homes he visited when he met one-on-one with people. No doubt he counseled people one-on-one using the word of God. And the point is, that at the heart of Paul's teaching, no matter where he taught and for what occasion he taught, he always focused on Christ. Listen, beloved, when we are ministering to one another, we need to remember we are not giving one another a system for how to make life better. We are offering them not a system, but a Savior. A Savior that you already may have. As a believer, you do have. But Jesus wants to do so much more than simply save you. I mean, is it, can you say simply before save you? Is there anything greater than that? And yet God gives us more. So much that God wants us to learn. And Paul even alludes to that here. So what is a faithful pastor do? He proclaims Christ. Second, he shepherds the flock. He shepherds the flock. Note with me verse 28, that Paul's purpose is to bring every believer that he serves into maturity in Christ. He says, verse 28, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Or he says, so that, that's a clue here, that this is his purpose. All of this has been driving to a purpose. Why is Paul talking about this? Why is he moving the conversation in this direction? The ultimate goal of his ministry and his teaching here is that people, all of them to whom he is ministering, would become mature in Christ. This is sanctification. We grow. This is progressive sanctification. We are growing in maturity, growing in Christ. We are becoming more like Christ. In other words, Paul is not merely concerned with preaching the gospel and leading people to saving faith, though that was certainly true. It was certainly a major focus of his ministry. I mean, this was first century uh, Christianity. I mean, nobody had heard this message before, so... Most of his preaching and teaching was, was uh, gospel 
preaching, invitational kind of preaching. Come and receive the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But to the church, he did so much more. He did so much more. Paul was also concerned about maturity, the maturity of every individual in the church. He wasn't just, he wasn't just about winning sheep. He was, he was also devoted to shepherding the flock. I remember this when I was a teenager. I remember being frustrated because I would go to church, and even in college, I went to a, a rather fundamental school and was frustrated by so much of the preaching, preaching to presumably Christian students, and it was as if, it's, out, as, it's as if we all jumped off of the Titanic, right? It was going down, it was going to take everyone down. We jumped off, and we're in the water, and somebody is proclaiming to us, get in the lifeboat, get in the lifeboat, get in the lifeboat and be saved. And we got in the lifeboat. We received Christ, we're in the lifeboat. And then we're sitting there, and we look at the guy who's leading or, or, or is steering our little lifeboat, and we say, okay, so what do we do now? And he says, get in the lifeboat, and you will be saved. And I'm like, I'm in the lifeboat. What do we do now? And he says, get in the lifeboat, and you will be saved. Come on, there's got to be another message. There's got to be more to this. And I don't, I don't know why I remember that, but it was so vivid in my mind when I was going to college because this is all everybody wanted to do. They just wanted to preach, come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ, which is wonderful. But to the church, there's more to learn. If all we do is stick with the elemental things, we will not grow. There's so much more. Even when I read a little while ago in Acts chapter 20, where Paul says, remember how I ministered among you, and I did not shrink back from giving you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Eternal life is about knowing God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And we will spend eternity learning him, growing in him, becoming more and more like him. There's so much to learn, and we should be eager to learn and eager to teach. So Paul is not just about winning sheep, he's about shepherding the flock. And, and wasn't this Jesus' concern when he gave his disciples the Great Commission? I mean, let's just refresh on that for a minute, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Here Jesus says he's about ready to, be, uh, about ready to ascend into heaven, and he tells his disciples one last thing. Here it is, the Great Commission. And he says, all authority has been given to me. So, so Jesus is going back to his eternal throne. He's king, and he's about ready to sit down next to the Father. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, that is, to obey and keep on obeying all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, it's important to note that there's only one imperative here. Uh, an imperative is a command. It's a directive. It's forceful. It's, this is not a suggestion. And so how many, how many 
imperative verbs are in the Great Commission? And the answer is, there's only one. And it's not go. Go is not an imperative verb. It's a participle. It's a participle, just like baptizing and teaching. So what Jesus is saying is, as you are going, and here's the command, make disciples. And what does making disciples look like? Well, it involves, listen to this, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. All that I have commanded you. Teach them to obey and keep on obeying everything I've commanded you. Now, we might say that a disciple is a person then who is striving to learn to bring every area of his or her life under the gracious rule and authority of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly it's exactly what Paul's doing. This is his concern. When he talks about the goal being to present everyone complete in Christ, he's saying, yes, on the one hand, Philippians 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. It will be instantaneous when you see his face. But now we see things in a mirror darkly. We're growing slowly. We're becoming more like Christ incrementally. As we gaze upon his glory, we are transformed more and more into the image of our Savior. And so a disciple is a person who is striving to learn to bring every area of his or her life under the gracious rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Notice the two terms that Paul uses to describe how he moves men and women in the church toward maturity in Christ. He's not just saying, get in the boat and be saved. He's saying, okay, now you're in the boat. Let's get out of the boat. Let's get in the house. Now we're in the house. There are things to do here. We have things you have to learn. How do you live in this house? You have a new father. You have new brothers and sisters. We got to learn how to get along, which by the way, most of, or, or the second half anyway, of the book of Colossians is all about that. How do we get along with one another? How do we live now that we're out of the boat, we're in the house? And so here's what he says, verse 28. He teaches and he warns. The word teaching here, didasco, means exactly what you might think it means. It means to instruct or to tell someone what to believe or what to do. The word for warning, this is especially interesting, it, it's nutheteo. It means to warn, good translation. It means to admonish. It means to counsel. And notice that Paul is warning and teaching with all wisdom. In other words, the content of his warning and teaching, or his admonishing is teaching, and teaching is the wisdom of God's Word. I'll never forget when I was studying theology at the Master's College, and um, I had to do a major study on the book of Proverbs. And I just fell in love with the book of Proverbs. And I did a whole series here on the book of Proverbs. It was called something like Warning Signs for I don't know what, 
but it, but it got me hooked on warning signs. And whenever I see a really good warning sign, I take a picture of it and keep it in my files because it reminds me of Proverbs. Proverbs is about warning us and instructing us. Here's Solomon. He's got all of these sons, and he knows that one of them, one day, is going to be king. And so he's warning them, stay away from, stay away from the wayward women, woman. Uh, one of his main messages is, beware of easy sex and easy money. Warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. And then so much of the Bible, even in Proverbs, instruction, 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 instruction. It's the whole counsel of God all over the Old Testament. And so he admonishes and he teaches with all wisdom. And that implies, I want to suggest to you, the use of the word of God. Not just being kind, not just mowing the lawn, but going to them and saying, God has a promise for you. God has wisdom for you. God has a warning for you. The word of God is wisdom for life. It warns us of danger. It teaches us what is really true, or as Francis Schaeffer would say, what is true truth. And Paul did all of this all of the time and in various ways. Of course, he warned and taught with all wisdom when he preached, to be sure. But he also warned and taught with all wisdom in whatever situation, whenever a need arose. I mean, you poke Paul, you get Bible. You get, you get not blood, you get Bible, as, as, as uh, Spurgeon would say, he would bleed Bibline. It's, it's not blood, it's, it's, it, it's Bible. He's just full of the Bible. He's full of God's word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is how Paul ministered. And I think we get this image of Paul just always preaching, always preaching, always preaching. And many pastors give their young protégés that, that opinion that to become a pastor is to preach, to preach, to preach. And many seminaries have taught their young men, your job is to preach, to preach, to preach. And then when someone comes and they have a need or they have a problem in their marriage or in their home or in their personal life or on the job or whatever it is, and they come to you and they say, I'm really struggling. Can you help me? That is not the time to preach. It is time to open up the word of God and bring it to bear upon their life, that situation, that need. And you know what? Can I just tell you, as, as a preacher who is also a counselor, preaching's easier. It's easier. It, it does take up two-thirds of my time during the week. But you know what? When I'm sitting across from someone, I don't have the luxury of writing it all out ahead of time. I don't have the luxury to use my, my Lagos Bible software and to come up with the answers that they desperately need from God's Word. You just have to know it. You have to always be knowing it, always learning it. And Paul knew the Word of God. Paul knew the Word of God. He was always ministering the Word of God. And 
Um, there are examples of it. Acts 20, 31, which I read earlier to the elders in Ephesus. He said, be alert, remembering that for three years, listen to this, for three years, he's in Ephesus. And during those three years, he said, I did not cease night or day to admonish, that's the word, to admonish every one of you with tears. You know what that tells me? Paul's heart was totally involved in the ministry to these people. And your heart, you know, you know secular counselors will say, you know, kind of one of the prime directives, never get personally involved. Paul always got personally involved. He's ministering to them in tears. He rejoices with those who rejoice. He weeps with those who weep. This is how Paul shepherded the flock. He brought the word of God to bear on their lives, often with tears. And you got to know, many, many times with joy. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, listen to this, admonish the idle. That's, that's that same word, nutheteo, counsel. Counsel them however they need to be counseled, which may mean, in this case, rebuke. I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. That means rebuke them. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all. Here, Paul is saying that different needs require different kinds of ministry of the word. He didn't admonish or rebuke the weak. He didn't, he didn't rebuke the weak person. He came beside them. He brought the promises of God to bear. He encouraged them. So he didn't minister to the weak the same way he would, he would uh, minister to a sinfully idle person. Beloved, it is this kind of biblical teaching that drives Calvary Bible Church to the ministry of personal discipleship and what we often call at the end of our services personal ministry. We're always exhorting you to personal ministry. And listen, the question is not, uh, will you give counsel? You do. If anybody comes to you and says, hey, I, I got an issue. Would you, would you listen to me and would you help me? If you give them an answer, you have counseled. The only question is, is that counsel biblical? Or did you get it from Dr. Phil? Or Oprah? Or I don't know who the new psychologists are. Where did you get that truth? Did it come from the wisdom of the Bible? Pastors should engage, listen, pastors should engage, not just in preaching the word, but ministering the word. Pastors should engage in it just as Paul did. In fact, Paul even instructed the churches to expect that their pastors would do this. Your pastors should be doing this. And at our church, every time we hire a new guy, he has to agree ahead of time that he's going to be trained to do this. He's going to learn how to engage in personal ministry of the word. And so your pastors should, you should understand that your, your expectation of your pastors is that they should be equipped to do this. To the church of Thessalonica, he writes, Chapter 5, verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and to admonish 
you. But this ministry of warning and teaching is not merely for pastors. It's not only for pastors. In this very book, the Apostle Paul, here in chapter 1, he's talking about his own ministry. But later on in chapter 3, verse 16, here's what he's going to say to you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know what that means? May your heart become fuller and fuller and fuller with the truth of God, the word of God. And then he says this, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. It's the same words he uses in chapter 1. This is chapter 3, verse 16. Teaching and admonishing, admonishing one another. One another. You know what that means? Look at the person next to you. You're supposed to admonish that person. Joseph, admonish your mother <laughs> as soon as the service is over. Um, we are to admonish one another. We're supposed to bring God's word to bear. And sometimes that's warm and wonderful and happy, and sometimes it's not happy. It's unnerving and disturbing. And that's the way the ministry of the word has always been. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Romans 15, 14, Paul says this to the believers in Rome. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. That's a great thought, isn't it? It's something I know about you that I'm really pleased with. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. You're able to do this. I don't have to be around all the time. I don't have to be around all the time. Listen, we always have told our children and still once in a while do, listen, our expectation, we, we are raising you to leave the home and not stay in it, right? And all the parents said, amen, right? Amen. We're not raising you to stay in the home. We're raising you to leave the home. We want you, when you when you turn 18, 19, 20, and you, and you leave the home, we want you to be equipped for that. And Paul is saying to the Roman believers, you are equipped for that. You're equipped to have your own families. As we have admonished you and instructed you with all wisdom, now you are able to do that. We have trained you. We have taught you. We have equipped you. And so get about the business of admonishing one another. Paul believed that men and women in the church who knew the wisdom of God's word are equipped to encourage in discipleship slash counseling conversations. And as they warn and instruct, Paul will say in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, according to the need of the moment, the hearts of the men and women that you minister to will conform a little more and a little more to the likeness of Christ by the power of his spirit. It's a wonderful thing. It's not primarily up to the pastors to do all of the, all of the training. Our job is to equip you, which is why we do so many things around here to train you not only in knowing the Bible, but putting the Bible to work. 
And so Paul teaches very clearly in Ephesians 4, 12 and 13, that it is the job of church leaders to, listen carefully, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the pastor's job is to equip the saints to minister the word to one another in such a way that the church grows. Uh, uh, Ken Basinger comes to me whenever he hears a sermon that, that he especially likes. And he always means this as a compliment. He, he comes and he says, the roots of the church were creaking this morning. They were growing deeper. And he knows that encourages me every time because that's the goal, that we would grow deeper. We would become more and more stable in our likeness of Christ. So the leader's job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry until we all reach mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I, I like using the illustration. It's been a long time since I've done this, but uh, when, uh, when our kids were younger, um, they would always want to see who's, who's taller, right? And eventually they get to be a lot older and they want to know if they're, they're as tall as dad. And so what do they do? They, well, okay, dad, well, let's check, let's check, let's check. So we, we go back to back, right? And then mom steps in and says, no, son, you're still shorter. No, son, you're sh still shorter. And then one day she says, Dude, <laughs> you're taller than your dad. And I think that's, that's kind of a picture of what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians, that we grow to maturity, to the fullness of the stature, or to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Not that you're as tall as him, but that your heart is just like his heart. Your mind is just like his mind. Your motives are his motives. Your deeds are his deeds. You become like him. You have learned Christ. And so you see faithful pastors shepherd their flocks. This is how we do it. And part of that shepherding responsibility involves equipping the saints to engage in conversations that instruct and warn with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And by the way, verse 28, notice the repetition of the word everyone. This privilege is for everyone. The pagan cults of the day were all about secret societies and mystery religions that were only for the initiated, who kind of knew the jargon, and who were now part of this little group but what God offers people through the ministry of the word, through the ministry of the church is for, he repeats it three times, everyone, everyone, everyone. Paul says, we warn everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone fully initiated, completely mature, in Christ. This is how the Great Commission makes progress in the world. 
Every faithful pastor emerges, excuse me, engages. Every faithful pastor engages in the process of sanctification, that work of admonishing and teaching with all wisdom, and every faithful Christian finds his place in that same work as well. And by the way, can I just say on behalf of the elders, there are so many of you who are so active in ministry, you just totally get it. You get it. You get what it means to be a part of a local church. You've committed here, and you want to be used here. And, and, and so many times, um, when I hear about how you're ministering to one another, I think, I wish I had thought of that. I wish I had thought of that. Or I wish I could do that. There's so many things that I can't do, and you can. And the elders are, are, just, are just so blessed to have a church body like this where so many of you are actively engaged. And if you're not, if you are in Christ and you are not actively engaged to the ministry, in the ministry of the body, then it's time to change. Or Paul would say it this way, it's time to grow up. Grow up. When, when you're a child, you expect everybody to give you stuff and make you happy. But when you grow up, you're the one who's giving. Be a giver. Be a giver. Grow and help. So the faithful pastor proclaims Christ. He shepherds the flock. And then finally and briefly, he labors for their ministry, for their maturity. He labors for their maturity. Notice verse 29. For this purpose I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. In other words, the faithful pastor works hard at these things. And can I just tell you that in, in the office here, if you came in during the week, you'd see men doing various things, but the guys who were teaching and preaching that particular week, they're working doubly hard because they're not just preparing their Sunday school lesson or their sermon. They're also throughout the week meeting with people, hearing their problems. People ask me, do you love, I mean, do you really just love counseling? And I say, no, <laughs> no, it's, it's hard and it's messy and it's dirty work. I don't love counseling. I love having counseled when it came out really well. And it doesn't always. And, and we're all at some level inadequate for the task. But God has called us to it. Notice verse 29. We toil struggling with all of his energy. In other words, the faithful pastor works hard at these things. He works hard preparing for public preaching the word. He works hard at the private ministry of the word. And he works hard at equipping the saints to join him in faithfully ministering or fulfilling the Great Commission through the church. Now, where does a faithful pastor or a faithful Christian find the wherewithal to do that? Well, it's not his energy. Paul's famous for saying, I, but not I. I, but not I. But it, it's Christ in me. It's not our energy. It's not our power. It's, it is the energy and power of God's Spirit. Nevertheless, Paul toils. The, the word there for toil means to labor to the point of fatigue or to wear yourself out. Paul says, I toil. 
struggling. The word struggle here is, uh, is the word in Greek, agonizomai. What does it sound like? It sounds like agonize, because that's where we get our English word from. To agonize, to strive, to do something with great intensity, to present as a love gift to Jesus everyone who has been entrusted to his care. Everyone mature in Christ. Beloved, this is why Calvary Bible Church, it's why we've always said that we are not so much concerned about how many people show up on Sunday morning. It's, it's, it's funny to say that here when there are only one, two, three, four, five, six people in the room plus me. Um, but we are, we're not terribly concerned about how many people show up. We're, we're more concerned about how mature in Christ you are. We just think the Lord wants us to be concerned about the depth of the church and let him worry about the breadth of the church. And so we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this we toil, struggling with all his energy that so powerfully works within us. So church, as you were looking for ways to minister to people in practical ways, please do that and do it more. Do it more and more and more. But as you do, look for opportunities to minister the word. Bring the word. Minister the word. Admonish with the word. It is God's wisdom. Like faithful pastors, faithful Christians proclaim Christ, they minister the word, and they help one another grow. Let's pray. Father, every one of us needs to grow, and every one of us needs help growing. So I praise you for this passage. Praise you for the men in this body who have been so instrumental in my growth men and women in this body who are so active in the lives of other people, helping them to grow. Father, may none of us be found spectators who do nothing for your glory in the church, but may we rather spend and be spent for the good of your people and for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.